coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast. And now your host, Mike Florio. Tuesday edition PFT PM, 14th day of August, 23 days away from the start of the regular season. Old school edition, if that's even possible for a podcast that's been around for about a year. Trying to reform this thing, or not reform it. Two, three days a week, I'd like to have a one-hour conversation. And we've managed to pull that off in recent weeks. And thanks again to Chris Ballard, the Colts GM. If you haven't heard that one, I think it's worth your time. One thing that I like is the opportunity to really have a conversation. It shouldn't be an interview. It should be a conversation where it's just two people on the phone. And they're talking, and it just happens to be recorded. And both parties know it as opposed to the situations we have become aware of in national news where only one person knows that the conversation is being recorded. That's not a political commentary. It's a fact. Wouldn't that be fun? Maybe I should do that, right? West Virginia is a one-party state, which means I could. Now, I don't know how it would work If I'm in West Virginia and the person I'm talking to is in another state that's a two-party state and I would secretly record a one-hour conversation and then put it... Let me tell you something. Based upon some of the conversations I've had with some of the people I've spoken to, that would be a hell of a lot more interesting than the one-hour conversation where both parties know about it. But obviously, I'm just spitballing here. I'm just trying to have some fun. This is the old format where I just say whatever I want to say for an hour. I don't have to worry about stats trying to step on my thought like he did today. I wanted to reach through the microphone and punch him right in the face when I was trying to make my point about the new helmet rule. And he had some cockamamie question, and I called him out for it on the air. I haven't talked to him about it off the air. I don't need to. I told him on the air what I think, and it wasn't shtick. I wonder if he thinks it was shtick. I wasn't happy. He thinks I'm overreacting to the helmet rule. Well, isn't it better to overreact in advance and make sure that everything is in proper order than to have to react at all during the season? Isn't that a better way to go? One of the biggest problems the NFL has and has had since, oh, I don't know, August of 2006, a stunning lack of foresight and a chronic inability to solve problems before they become problems. Now, in fairness, there's a chance that there are plenty of other problems that haven't become problems that we don't know about because, you know, they haven't become problems. But... When you look at just this ricochet of issues and failures by the league office to understand the way that dominoes could fall, the way that dots could connect, and this helmet rule, 21 words, it's a foul, if, and I'm not reading it word for word, but basically it's a foul if you lower your helmet to initiate and make contact with an opponent. With no restriction, no limitation, no exception, no requirement of forcible contact. And that's what I was explaining today when Stats had this goofy question, hot take, that you're the guy who says don't watch a TV show until it's become established because you want to wait and see if it's successful. Why not wait and see what happens? Because if we wait and see what happens, we're going to undermine the integrity of an entire football season. There's going to be one standard that applies week one, two, three, four, five, Then the outcry becomes so much that they feel compelled to subtly change the standard. And then they start calling it differently. So you have half of a season played under one standard, another half played on another standard, and that's not good for anybody. There are people who still believe that the catch rule was adjusted and the standard for reviewing the catch rule was adjusted for Super Bowl 52. Go back and look at the Corey Clement play. If that play happens during the regular season, that play is overturned. And you take seven points off the board. Period. That undermines the integrity of the season. But the NFL would rather say that air pressure in football that naturally changes when you're playing games out in January conditions in Foxborough, that that's a bigger threat to the integrity of the game. Assuming that that is something that was done deliberately when at best the evidence was inconclusive. That's a bigger threat to the integrity of the game than changing the rules on the fly. Oh, that's no big deal. Baloney. So change the rule now, add the word forcible, and add an exception for incidental contact, and it's fixed. It's that simple. And I'm going to keep banging this drum for two reasons. Number one, I firmly believe I'm right. 
Number two, it irritates stats. And I got a third reason. Nobody else seems to be bothered by it. And I don't know why. See, I feel like there's this vague ethic that has emerged in sports media over the past five or six years that it's inappropriate to embrace the violence of football, that there's something wrong about it, that we shouldn't enjoy it, that we should push back against it, and we should encourage any and all efforts to make the game safer. Now, I support any and all efforts to make the game safer. And there was a period of time where I believe the NFL was committed to taking unnecessary violence out of the game. Spot something that is unnecessary and remove it from the game. Now I feel like it's crossing over into an effort to make the game less violent while impacting necessary maneuvers. The form tackle. Oh, sorry, I know you were trying to perform a form tackle there, pal, but your helmet accidentally hit him in the thigh as you were trying to wrap him up. Sorry. Hey, sucks for you that you didn't realize he was going to step that way because you were trying to get him wrapped up. And yeah, it's kind of like chasing a greased chicken around a, a field like Rocky because that target is always moving. That target is slippery. That target's getting small. While you're trying to get small, that target's getting smaller. And you go in with your helmet trying to do a form tackle, and guess what? Your helmet may hit his helmet. Well, sucks for you. 15 yards. Fine. Ejection. Suspension. This rule needs to be focused on one thing. The use of the helmet as a weapon. And don't we all know it when we see it? Didn't we know it when we saw Danny Trevathan do it? Didn't we know it when we saw Malcolm Jenkins go in helmet first. Now, his wasn't as egregious. I say maybe his would have been a flag and not an ejection. But anytime you line a guy up, anytime a guy is trying to fight for more yardage and someone else comes in and pow. See, when the target's stationary, if you hit the target with your helmet while the target is stationary because someone is trying to, to tackle the person and has stopped his progress, that's when it should clearly be a foul. And I have no problem with giving the officials a certain degree of discretion here. That's better than having this broad blanket rule that says anytime you drop your helmet and make contact, it's a foul. That's just unacceptable, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm going to be on with Brett Musburger, the Vegas Stats and Information Network, later today. They reached out specifically because they like my take on the helmet rules. So maybe some others are starting to realize what a mess this could be. I'll be doing that 6.30 p.m. Eastern. The podcast should be posted by then. I should be done talking by then. I'm taping this 3.30 p.m. Eastern. I've been babbling on for about 10 minutes already. Let's move on to another topic. Because stats is sick of me overreacting to the helmet rule. There are betting odds on who will end up with Khalil Mack on the roster this year. The favorites are the Raiders, 3-2. to two. Next, the Packers, 11-4. I'd be shocked if he gets traded to the Packers, folks. Now, I understand Brian Gutekunst is different, far different, from his predecessor at general manager, Ted Thompson. They've already signed multiple veteran free agents. Jimmy Graham, Mercedes Lewis, Muhammad Wilkerson. At a minimum. The idea of giving up draft picks of maybe giving up Clay Matthews to get Khalil Mack and paying Khalil Mack what he wants. You got a quarterback who is $8 million per year below the current market, who I think is getting irritated, increasingly irritated. And I think the comment he made yesterday when explaining away his remark from last week about the piss-poor play of young receivers, and that was his quote, piss-poor, during a carded session where they're trying to serve as scout team offense to allow the defense to work on various techniques, etc. So when Aaron Rodgers essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing here, if I wasn't going to call out the players for having a bad practice, who was going to do it? 
Basically, nobody else was going to do it. I'm really butchering the quote. It would have been better if I had just found the quote and read it. But no one else was doing it, so I had to. Now, Chris Sims and I debated this today on PFT Live, and the argument was, from Sims, he meant no other players were doing it, so he had to. Well, if any player is going to do it, it's him. I think he's referring to the coaching staff, and I think that's the kind of pass-aggressive shot that he's taken in the past. And I also think that if he had his contract, if he was making $32 million a year, then maybe he, he wouldn't have gone that route. It's funny, as I'm doing this, my son, back in Morgantown, getting ready for the semester, not happy about that. I like it when he's here. I understand he's got to get his degree and get on with his life make his preparations to eventually take over PFT in hostile fashion. He just texted me. He was half asleep last night. The dark night was on, and he heard the quote that he uttered last week that we didn't realize, or at least I didn't realize, was from the dark night. You either die a hero or live long enough to become a villain. Harvey Dent. It's funny. He just texted that now. So leave me alone while I'm doing the podcast, kid. Don't you have something to do? Give me a break. They got Fall Fest at Morgantown today. Little Yachty is performing, whoever that is. Anyway, back to the Packers. I think there's a little passive-aggressive play from Aaron Rodgers here, and he's not happy because he doesn't have a contract, and I'm not sure that he would have said what he said yesterday. I'm not sure he would have made the piss-poor play remark publicly. I don't think he calls teammates out publicly if he's happy with his contract. I don't know that, but I'm allowed to speculate on it. Let me speculate on this. He'd be pissed off if they pay Khalil Mack a ton of money. Now, they wouldn't pay Khalil Mack more than him. But at a time when he's trying to squeeze the money out of the public coffers and everyone knows how much money's there, everyone knows how much money they made, everyone knows how much profit's there. I argued earlier this year that, you know, he should get a piece of the gross. That's how important he is to that team. But just the fact that they can dig deep and sign Khalil Mack... I don't know that Aaron Rodgers would be happy about that, although it would make the team better. Assuming you don't have to give up too much. Max entering year five, he was the 2016 Defensive Player of the Year. I also think that you get more out of the guy if you get him next year. Now, obviously, if you're going to give up 2019 draft pick compensation, it's better to get him sooner than later, but the car's moving. Changing the tire on a moving car, maybe you don't get the most out of Mac this year. Maybe you're paying him a bunch of money for this year that, eh, stay in Oakland and make your $13 million. We'll give you your financial windfall next year when we have the benefit of the full offseason program and training camp to get the most out of you in the regular season. The other teams on this list, Bills at 7-1, Cowboys, Colts, and Jets at 8-20. The Cowboys can't pay him. Now, I know that you probably can't place a bet against the Cowboys doing it, and do you really want one to eight odds? But the Cow- I would the Cowboys, the Steelers at 12 to one, the Steelers aren't going to pay Khalil Mack. It's asinine. I think if you're going to bet this one, bet the Raiders three to two. Or bet on something else. I think he's going to show up for Oakland as late as he possibly can and still get credit for this contract year. I think the Raiders are counting on him not missing a regular season check. And I believe what happened back in February when John Gruden was pissed off because he couldn't work with his players and he was ready to get rolling, he decided, I'm going to spend some money and I'm going to nail down my team for 2018. And I think they made an offer to Khalil Mack and it didn't go anywhere. And Gruden said, screw it. Let's spend the money on other players. And they went out and got a bunch of other guys. And now they don't have the money to pay Mack anything beyond the $13.846 million he's due to make this year. And they're counting on him not turning his nose up at 800000 a week. Which he starts to lose officially. Now... I guess officially he's already losing 800000 a week because when you miss preseason games in your fifth-year option under the CBA, it's only the guys in the fifth year of that five-year rookie deal. You lose a game check by way of fine. But if he shows up right before week one and says, I'm here to make my 800000 a week, then they're not going to say, here's a bill for $3.2 million. They're not going to do that. But... Once you don't show up for week one, it's not like they're going to give you free 800 grand for a game you didn't play. So I think that's when it becomes real. And I think the Raiders are banking on him showing up 
and we'll see. Hard Knocks Tuesday night. I don't know that they'll include the Todd Haley-Greg Williams confrontation because last Tuesday they didn't have the Corey Coleman trade from Sunday night. They teased it. Well, anybody who's paying attention knows the guy's been traded. It was kind of goofy, but we're going to get to see this week Corey Coleman being told that he doesn't have a job in Cleveland anymore. You know how I feel about that. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I don't think certain things should be put on public view. I don't think meetings where someone finds out they're being fired should be publicized, unless, of course, the person secretly tapes it and publicizes it himself or herself. Then then it's okay. Then, you know, you have the right to publicize it if you're the one who's been fired. I don't like the idea of all these meetings with players being fair game. And I'll say what I said last year with the L.A. Rams on the All or Nothing series. If we're not going to see Jeff Fisher get fired by Stan Kroenke, Kevin Demoff, Les Snead, or some combination of the three. If that's not fair game, then none of these meetings with players are fair game either. Or at least they shouldn't be. Anyway, I don't know whether or not this Todd Haley or Greg Williams fight is going to make its way into this week. If not this week, next week. And it wasn't a fist fight. It was Todd Haley expressing himself because contact had been made with Baker Mayfield. Don't touch the bleeping quarterback in practice. Williams says somebody's got to bleeping, bleeping block them. And Haley's right here. You know, the point I made when I wrote about it earlier today, even if the offensive lineman lay down deliberately, the defensive lineman can't blow up the quarterback. That's just one of the fundamental rules of practice at the NFL level. The quarterback doesn't get hit because they don't want the quarterback to get hurt. First string, second string, third string, whatever. So the thing that struck me as significant, good teams don't do it. That was the comment from Todd Haley. And, you know, every one of those references to what good teams do, especially from a guy who's been with good teams in recent years. He was with the Steelers for six. He took the Chiefs to the playoffs for a year before he was fired. He knows what good teams do. goes back to that debate last week. Hugh Jackson defending the idea of resting players in practice, and they haven't had a single soft tissue injury. Yeah, they, they have one win and zero soft tissue injuries. Congratulations. I, I think this is going to be a common theme, and it's unavoidable. Because any comment about what good teams do immediately boomerangs back to the Browns being anything but a good team, the exact opposite of a good team, 1-31 and over the last two years, and the coach over the last two years is still there. The contrast is always going to be there. And that fascinates me. That's what makes Hard Knocks far more compelling than I ever thought it would be. Oh, and next week, we're going to have Des Bryant. His visit is coming up on Thursday. So maybe he'll be signed by then. Who knows? All right. I'm looking to see what else has gone on since we conducted PFT Live earlier today. Dante Fowler and Jalen Ramsey coming back from suspension on Monday. I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but but I still don't know what Jalen Ramsey's mindset is going to be when he returns. Because I don't know how contrite he is. I don't know whether he even agrees that he should have been suspended. Does he come back with a chip on his shoulder or a stick up his ass or both? That's my question. And is this the beginning of the end? Does he become resolved to get out of Jacksonville at some point? You you never know what's going to set someone off. You never know what's going to cause someone to dig in and say, you treated me unfairly. I'm going somewhere else. Ramsey would have to put in five years under his rookie deal Two years of the franchise tag if he goes year to year. And all he has to say is, I'm going year to year. Any player that wants to be Kirk Cousins, you know, Washington made it easier for Kirk Cousins because they never gave him an offer that was worth accepting. But any player that wants to do it can do it. All you have to say is, I don't want your contract. Now, they may make you an offer you can't refuse, or that you won't refuse because it's life-changing money for you and one generation beyond you, maybe two, maybe more. And you don't want to take the risk of throwing back that bird in the hand. But if you're determined to get out of a given town, all you have to say is, I'll play out my contract and you can tag me twice and then you're not going to give me a 44% raise of quarterback money. You're just not. Whatever the quarterback franchise tag would be, this is year three for Ramsey. So 19 is year four, 20 is year five. He'd be unrestricted in 2023 unless they use quarterback money. I bet it's more than 30 million a year by then. 
to keep him for just one more year. And there's still an open question. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of the CBA, but if this year-to-year thing becomes a dynamic, not just an aberration, there's a question as to whether a fourth franchise tag can be applied. I think there are some in the union that believe that only three franchise tags are possible. And that after that third one, if anybody ever does the third one, the third one, you know, again, it's a 44% raise or quarterback money. They put that in there because Walter Jones did three years of franchise tag with the Seahawks and then got his long-term contract. He played it just right. He showed up right before the start of the regular season for three straight years. Then he got his long-term deal after that. But now that third year, that was added back in 2006, I believe. The last contract done by Paul Tagliabue and Gene Upshaw. The increase in the third franchise tag makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to tag a guy a third time. So anyway, if Ramsey... And again, I, this is all speculation. Supposition. But if he's pissed about this suspension and he thinks he got screwed, he thinks he got railroaded, then you never know. Like I said, you never know what's going to stick in a guy's craw and make him say, I'm done. But he'll be back next Monday. Dante Fowler will be back. And I say keep an eye on this Dante Fowler, Yannick Ngakwe dynamic. Two guys on the same side of the ball aren't supposed to fight at practice. Training camp fights happen because guys are blocking each other, they're hitting each other, and somebody goes a little too far, and then the guy retaliates. Hey, man, what's your deal? Hey, what's your deal? And the next thing you know, they're scrapping. There's no reason for Ngakwe and Fowler to fight. But it could be Ngakwe saying... I got a four-year, $3.4 million contract, and this scrub's got four years, $23.4 million. I got as many sacks in one year as he has in his damn career. And he's getting all the money. He's weighing me down. He's taking money that should be going to my family. And he was on the pup list. He missed the first week and a half of Camp Coughlin. Or Camp Marone, as the case may be. Or both. Camp Coughlin Marone. I could see why there'd be resentment. I mean, something... Something other than Ngakwe and Fowler hitting each other during 11-on-11s caused this fight. So it's going to be interesting to see how Fowler is regarded by the team. And then he's got a one-week suspension to start the season. All right, I think that covers pretty much everything. Nick Foles gets a few plays against the Patriots this week. Okay, they still have Joe Houlihan to come in and mop up if need be. Anthem issue, we'll talk more about that later in the week. I like the idea that the union recognizes that it has significant leverage here because it does. And for a while, there was a sense that maybe the union would would go easy on the issue, not fully squeeze the NFL as much as it could in the hopes of creating the right atmosphere for the looming CBA negotiations. Maybe they've realized that they probably shouldn't take that leap of faith given past history between the league and the union. Do we really think, and I'm being fair here, based upon everything we know about the NFL and the way it does business, do we really think that if the union doesn't squeeze maximum concession out of the league to craft a new anthem policy, let's say the league wants the players to agree that they will all stand for the anthem. No one will be in the locker room. Everyone will stand. President Trump, you win. Issue's over once and for all. Do we really think if the union doesn't take every bit of juice that it can get from the league in exchange for that deal and just hopes that the league will be friendly, will be nice, you be nice when they do the next CBA? Do we really think the league's going to do that? Do you, th- you really think the league's going to do that? Maybe the NFLPA strings this thing out until the next CBA negotiations. Isn't that the best time to get the most in return? Okay, you want us to stand for the anthem? What do we get? What are we going to do? All right, let's come on. Let's go. Get rid of the franchise tag. Let's start. What else? Get rid of the marijuana prohibition. What else? Oh, you want us to you want us to suggest making the regular season 18 games? Okay, what are you giving us? Let's go. Maybe they should just do the CBA extension right now. Just do it now. You know, I've heard some talk that the NFL wants to do the new CBA before it does the next round of broadcast deals. And I have some thoughts that I'll share with you at some point regarding what the next broadcast contracts may look like. But there's a thought that the NFL wants to do the CBA before the broadcast contracts. Well, do the CBA now. Do it now. See, the problem is there isn't a real deadline. 
It's a deadline-driven business. What's the deadline? And there isn't enough time. I mean, it would be perfect if they could get the anthem policy in place before week one of the regular season. All players stand. It's not enough time to negotiate a CBA. Not nearly enough time. Now, if they really wanted to, I guess they could, but I just don't know that the urgency would ever be there to get it done. But the NFL needs this anthem issue to go away. And it looked like for a while, a little while, that maybe the union was going to cave in and not fully get everything it could. I think they're realizing they need to get what they can. All right, let's see what we got here. Questions from the PFTPM posse. First one, and this one, let's see, piggybacks off of Mike Likes Dirt. There was a question. Let's see what we got here. I'm trying to understand this. Besides not watching the games and angrily typing away on our keyboards and screens, what can we as fans do to let the NFL, the commissioner, and NFL owners know that we don't like these new helmet rules? I, I don't. I don't know what you can do. I mean... You make yourself, I don't know how much they pay attention to what the average person says on Twitter. I think what you can do, though, this is something you can do. You can get in touch with, this is almost like contacting your your local representative, right? If you live in Pittsburgh, get in touch with one of the beat writers, one of the columnists at the paper. Make sure they understand the issue and make sure they understand the fans are concerned about the issue. I'll get back to what I said earlier. I feel like some in the media are reluctant to be perceived as embracing and favoring the violence in football. And that's not what this is. This is embracing football as football. Because this isn't a health and safety change that makes the game better, makes the game safer. I guess it makes it safer. I don't I don't know how much safer the game's going to be because people are still going to try to tackle each other. See, this isn't something that is removing an unsafe technique. This is something that is going to randomly penalize a necessary technique that sometimes will result in a helmet hitting a player while a guy's trying to make a tackle, and sometimes it won't. That, that's nonsensical. There's a certain amount of unavoidable contact, and we're at a point now where everyone knows the risks. Hey, you know what? There's a chance if you're a defensive player while you're making a tackle, your head may hit the body or the helmet or both of the guy you're trying to tackle, and that may not be good for you. You understand that, don't you? That bacon that you're eating may not be good for you. That e-cig that you're vaping off of may not be good for you. That motorcycle that you ride without a helmet may not be good for you. That sports car that you drive 125 miles an hour, that may not be good for you. That rock wall you like to climb because you like the rush of it with George and Kramer and George brought sandwiches, that may not be good for you. People understand the risk. And I'm all for taking unnecessary risk out of football. But this rule is taking something that is necessary to the game and randomly making it a penalty. And I hate it. So let people in the media know. Get them to stand up and say something. Because right now, it's pretty much just me. PFT Pam Posse says you should post the behind the scenes audio video that occurs during commercials on PFT Live on the PFT PM subreddit. Us in the PFT PM Posse would love that. But see, if we knew that was being posted, we wouldn't. We wouldn't say half the things we do. I mean, we have a lot of fun. Now, I know that, remember the Chris Berman tapes that emerged where he's ranting and raving and talking about smuggling doo-doo-doos out of Canada and all that. I mean, I understand that anything you say can and will be used against you, so I try not to cross any lines or, like, be a raving asshole any more than I ordinarily am. But even so, there's a looseness to it that goes away if you know this is being broadcast. So it wouldn't nearly be as good. That's the that's the catch-22. One of the reasons it's so much fun is it's not being broadcast. If we knew it was being broadcast, it wouldn't nearly be as good. PFTPM Posse, why aren't we hearing much about the NFL commissioner mishandling of Anthem slash investigations after giving him a massive extension? Everybody was quick to shower him with praise as the enforcer, but now we see he was just heavy-handed and the NFL was the original Trump administration. Oh, God. Don't call it that. Although, oh, hey, non-political. All I know is this, and this has nothing to do with political ideologies. I've paid fairly close attention to national news really for the last 40 years, maybe 30 years. 
I try to stay up on current events. There's a level of chaos with this Omarosa stuff and the Michael Cohen stuff. I mean, if you associate with people that are capable of doing things that are going to hurt you later, you got to have a better sense of who to associate with on the front end. It has nothing to do with political ideology. This is street smarts. And that's the one thing I thought that this president had that allowed him to be successful. Just that, that street smarts, right? Good instincts. Based upon some of these people he surrounded himself with, I don't know. And again, that's not political. That's more of a social commentary because we see the messes. How many other, because people come and go all the time in administration, how many other times there's just been this stream of people who have been connected to a president that just keep causing mess after mess after mess after mess? Most of the time they go away and they're never heard from again. Anyway, back to the question. Now that I've tried to put the toothpaste back in the tube based upon my reaction to the League Office being the original Trump administration. And actually, now see, I'm going to make it even more political. There are elements of the League Office that I think are a lot more like the Bush administration because I think that there was a dynamic there. And I voted for Bush in 2000. There was a dynamic there that he wanted to be surrounded by people who told him what he wanted to hear. And if you didn't tell him what he wanted to hear, he'd find somebody else who would do the job that entailed you telling him what he wanted to hear. And I had clients like that when I practiced law, typically corporate clients. And I angered plenty of managers when I told them what they needed to do because I wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. So you have to find a way to make them want to do what they need to do, and it's not always easy. And I feel like that's what's going on at 345 Park Avenue. That the commissioner has surrounded himself with people who tell him what he wants to hear. And there's a very strong conviction in that unwavering belief as to what needs to happen. And I don't know what has gone on with the anthem. I don't know if the commissioner just is afraid to touch it. I don't know why they didn't swoop in like the NBA did when Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was first seen not standing for the anthem 20-some years ago. Why don't you get it fixed then? See, I think the NFL never wanted to make a concession to the union because this gets back to the fact that there isn't a good relationship between the union and the league. There isn't the kind of the relationship where Roger Goodell could pick up the phone and call D. Smith and say, look, this isn't good for either of us. If this becomes a thing, if this becomes a trend, if players start not standing for the end, we need to nip this in the bud now. Let's work something out where we fix this rule. And you know what? We, we didn't write the rule as clearly as we could. The rule says you must be on the sideline and you should stand. And that seems to be an inadvertent creation of a right to protest. But we never really thought anybody would protest. Nobody's ever done that before. Can, can you just help us out here? I mean, it's just like it's a clerical error. You know, the goofy lawyers put in should instead of must, and but they don't have that kind of relationship. That's what would have fixed it, and that's the kind of foresight that I was talking about earlier, that the, need, the league needs to be using now as it relates to the helmet rule. Here's another question. Oh, this one requires more thought. I don't know that I can can answer this one without having a chance to at least sleep on it. What moments in your life had the biggest change or impact in the way you view the world, culture, society, etc.? What moments in my life had the biggest impact on the way I view the world, culture, society, etc.? I, you know, I've had in my life what I call specific moments of clarity, but I need to think this, maybe this is for the book. Maybe I really need to think this through. Maybe there should be a book at some point that five people would buy. I mean, I remember moments where, because when, when you're, you're busy and life's moving fast, you don't always have a chance to sit and reflect and things just land up like boom, like pow. It just kind of hits you like a lightning bolt. And I've talked about some of them before. But, look, I, I'll tell you, I, and, I, and I'm sure I've discussed this before, but the biggest thing 
that is responsible for any degree of success that I've had in my life was being eight, nine, 10 years old and hearing my parents argue about money and having a palpable sense. And you know, parents say they, they, they think the kid can't hear and the kid can hear, you know how that goes. Having a palpable sense that maybe there isn't enough money. And what does that mean if there isn't enough money? And hating that feeling. It scares the shit out of you when you're a little kid. And for me, there was, and I don't know how conscious it was. I don't know how strategic it was. There was just a resolve, kind of a quiet resolve that I will never live like that. I will never be in that position. I will do whatever I have to do to ensure that even though there's going to be plenty of other challenges and issues and problems that come up in day-to-day life, and we all have them, the one thing that won't happen ever, there won't be a conversation in the house that we think the kid doesn't hear, that the kid can hear about how this bill is going to be paid or that bill is going to be paid or whether or not my sister who was in college at the time was going to be able to go back because we didn't have the money to pay the tuition. That had a profound impact on me, and I wrestle with that now because when you have that life for your child, and I've had this conversation with plenty of people who have had financial success, you bust your ass to give your child a better life, you give your child a better life, where do they get the motivation to bust their ass to have a better life? There's value in having that adversity when you're young. And I'm sure plenty of people who become financially successful to a reasonable degree relative to their upbringing, they had that adversity when they were young. They spent those nights worrying, what happens if we have to move? Where do we go if we can't pay the bills? What happens if this, you know, and, and it never quite got to that point. It never did. It never crossed. There was a line out there. There was a wall that it never happened, but worrying about it, that, you know, that, 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 uh, I still remember that feeling just talking about it. It makes that feeling come back and that, that's a hell of a motivator. So, you know, you give your kids a life where they don't have to worry about that. And, and it's like, mm, maybe it would have been good if you had to worry about it. Maybe it would have been better. Maybe we should have lied. Maybe we, maybe we should have, uh, done like the old school Italians and buried the money in the backyard in mason jars anyway uh those are the that's the one that's the one big one that's the one from which everything that i ever did that led to any type of objective quote-unquote success came from sometime between 1973 and 1975 being scared about the prospect of not having money to pay for stuff and deciding in that moment that I'll never be in that place and my kids will never be in that place and I'm never going to be at a point in my life where I ever have to worry about that. So that was a huge, huge, huge driving force in everything I did after that, from that point forward, 45 years later. And there's still an element of that. It doesn't go away. Stuff like that that happens to you when you're 8, 9, 10 years old, it never goes away. Good, bad, or otherwise. And this one is good and bad and maybe a little bit otherwise. All right, what else do we have? Gabe, 56, life. If the Browns do well enough this season to not fire Hugh Jackson, does it make it awkward between the GM and the head coach in the sense the GM has his own coach for the future? Yeah, I mean, I remember when, and this was back when I got started in this business, 2001, Jerry Angelo became the head coach of the Bears very late in the process. Mark Hatley, I believe, was fired in May or June. Angelo was hired following a full-blown search, and Angelo wanted to hire his guy, Lovey Smith or Nick Saban, although Saban was never going to go to the Bears. Well, Angelo had Dick Duron, and it was too late to fire Dick Duron. It was June, so he had to go forward with Dick Duron, and what did Dick Duron do? He took the Bears to the playoffs. They went one and out, but then they had to give him an extension, and it was two more years before Angelo could fire Dick Duron. And then he hired Lovey Smith. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a secret 
that John Dorsey wants his own head coach. Every GM wants his own head coach. I don't think John Dorsey got that job thinking, you know what, this is just perfect. I am so glad you guys hired me to be the coach of the Browns because I was just thinking if I'm ever a head coach again, I'm going to hire Hugh Jackson. If I'm ever a GM again, I screwed up my bit. If I'm ever a GM again, I'm going to hire Hugh Jackson. And here he is. This is amazing. I couldn't have planned it any better. I wanted to be a GM, and you made me a GM, and I wanted to hire Hugh Jackson, and you already have. Thank you. No. I'm a firm believer Dorsey knows who he's going to hire, and Dorsey knows that that person wants Baker Mayfield. And the only reason I am not saying that the claim that Mayfield won't play this year is complete and total bullshit is because I think Dorsey wants to keep Mayfield on ice for the next coach, whoever it may be. I don't know that. Not that I ever know anything, but I kind of believe that. PFTPM pause. The NFLPA actually has legitimate leverage with the anthem issue, and if they exert it fully, they risk pissing off the owners and worsening their crappy relationship. How do you strike the balance of maximizing leverage while trying to improve the working relationship? What might players get? Well, look, they, they need some sort of a of epiphany and a moment a moment of clarity, like I was talking about earlier, where they resolve to move forward in a positive way, in a partnership, because it is a partnership. You can't have one without the other. There's no league without the players. There's no players without the league. So I don't know what it takes. You know, maybe this, this is it. This is a, an external threat to the game. Maybe. I don't know. Depends on who you listen to. I think they should take this seriously because I don't think it's going to go away. Josh Norman had the comments to the ringer. Basically, just ignore Trump. He's going to be gone in two years. Well, first of all, I don't think he's going to be gone. In, I, I'm, not, I'm not predicting anything. I just think it's foolish to assume he will be gone in two years. The people who are assuming he'll be gone in two years are probably the same people who assumed he'd never be there in the first place. But also, he has helped other politicians find a button that is going to survive beyond his presidency. It's an easy way to distract your base or rally them around an idea. We stand for the anthem. So, maybe this is the issue that galvanizes the union in the league. I don't know. I don't know. The risk is, if the NFLPA goes too easy on this, the NFL is going to screw them on the backside, and that's what's going to make it even worse. And if I'm DeMora Smith, if I'm anyone in any type of management role at the union, I'm very concerned that if I, if I do the NFL a favor here, if I hold the door for the NFL, they're going to slam the door in my face the first chance they get because past practices, past history tells us that's what they would do. So what can the NFL do? To show good faith. Maybe the NFL should make a significant concession. Even if it's largely meaningless. You know, I say all the time, the marijuana policy it doesn't matter because the players who get it, they they can get around it anyway. So why not give that up? I mean, that's just one for instance. I don't know. I still don't think that the union would want that because I think the union realizes it only affects a small handful of guys who don't know how to stay out of out of trouble under the policy, and most of them do. Another one from the PFTPM Posse, since we know how the NFL basically never admits they were wrong or backs down from a conflict, no matter how wrong they are, unless it's the president, how likely is it they fix the helmet rule fiasco prior to week one? Will they do it secretively like PSI measurements? I, I Look, I think they need to fix the helmet rule before week one. I don't think they'll admit that they were wrong. And I... I, Because here's the, here's the problem. If anyone goes in to the commissioner's office and says, hey, Roger, we, we, we've got a problem here with this helmet rule. The way it's written, it's really broad. It's going to be hard to enforce it consistently. And maybe we need to have a little more guidance in this rule. Maybe we need to change this rule. We should have a conference call with all 32 owners, and we need to tell them that as written, this rule goes, goes farther than it should, and we need to require that the contact be forcible before it's a foul, and we need to create an exception that if it's incidental, then it's not going to be a penalty. Goodell's first reaction is going to be, is why the hell are we having this conversation in August? Aren't you the one who told me this was the rule that we needed? Aren't you the one that convinced me that we should push this through, that it was an existential threat to the game if we don't take the helmet out of the game? Aren't you the one that drafted this rule? Too much ego, too much pride, too much refusal to admit that anyone was wrong. And to be called on the carpet for it. That's why I think it'll never happen.
because I think the people in position to make it happen are not willing to go in to see the wizard and take the dressing down that goes along with admitting, you know what, Roger, we screwed this up and now we need to fix it. Mike likes dirt. What interviews that you've done have dramatically changed your views on an issue or topic or simply widened your perspective? That's a good question, and that's my way of buying time. I don't know. I haven't thought of it that way. I really haven't. Anytime I have a chance to have an extended interview with a newsmaker, that that in some way makes me view the game differently. I remember having a 70-minute conversation with Thomas Dimitrov of the Falcons last year when they were making the rounds in connection with the opening of their stadium. And we talked about distractions and how distractions can actually be good for a football team because when you're on the football field, everything you're trying to do has a physical distraction. Somebody is pushing and pressing against you while you try to do that thing you're supposed to do. So maybe distractions generally help you deal mentally with the distractions, the ultimate distractions to see on a field. Last year, some of the, and this was more, off-the-record type discussions I had. I learned a lot about the importance of quarterback leadership, not naturally from the quarterback, but from the organization, supporting the guy, making sure that the rest of the team understands he's your leader through his contract, through the way he's treated, through the way the PR staff deals with negative stories. Do they plant them or do they shoot them down? That's a quick answer. That's really all I got. But I wanted to give you something that was at least mildly meaningful. At the Real Forno, do you believe the NFL could have each NFL team with their own broadcast team do every game similar to the NBA, NHL, and MLB? Uh, see, I, the, the, the TV rights are all global. They're sold by the league. There aren't individual rights. And there isn't a supplemental package. There aren't enough games. When you got 82 games, 162 games, whatever, you know what I mean? They have the radio broadcasts, but there aren't local TV rights. There's one set of rights. And who knows how it's going to change moving forward. But for now, I mean, it is what it is because there's only 256 regular season games. There's only 32 teams. There's only 16 games per week, although that number goes down during buys. And I, it just it, it doesn't fit the same way that the sports that have a lot more inventory would handle it. The Real Forno, how do you feel about each team? Oh, that's already there. Brady, do you see Dez visiting any other teams after Cleveland on Thursday? I don't know of any, and he wasn't bashful about mentioning the Browns last week. I think Dez Bryant needs to get signed ASAP. I talked to Chris Ballard about this yesterday, generally as it relates to bringing in a receiver at this stage of the game. It's too late to easily make an impact. A lot of work needs to be done. First of all, you move into a new city. Second of all, you got new teammates. Third of all, you got a new offense, new playbook, new terminology, new coaches. Des Bryant's been in the same offense his entire career, the X receiver in Jason Garrett's offense. That's it. Changing the tire on a moving car. And there isn't much time left to get ready for week one. Not good for Des Bryant. CJ Newman, I need a hug, Mike. Can I have one? Sure, sure. At Mike Likes Dirt, how's the not-so-new grill doing any masterpieces to report on? Yeah, the new grill, look, I remember before I used it the first time, it was beautiful. I used to go out and just open the lid and look at it because I knew once I started cooking on it, it would never be that clean again, and it has never been that clean again. My new cut of meat that I am enjoying is the New York Strip. Not that it's new, not that they just invented it, but I was reluctant to cook it in the past. It, it takes a little more care to get the right char, to get the right center. But I've made a few recently that I really enjoy. And uh, maybe I'll go get one tonight. I don't know. The filet's easy. It's easy to get it just how you want it. It's really good, you know, tender. But I'm thinking about that New York strip right now. My stomach's starting to growl, so maybe that's what I need to do. On Tour Forever, got any inside word on when West Virginia is going to get legalized sports betting? They're still waiting on these final regulations. And I've heard some noise about, I don't know, issues with, I don't know. They, they want to get it done by football season. They need to get it done by football season. That's when they really start losing money. West Virginia's got enough other issues. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It finally became national news today. Five members of the West Virginia Supreme Court. One was under investigation for some fairly serious allegations of misappropriation of funds and whatnot. He's been indicted 
facing federal trial, suspended by the court. They commenced impeachment proceedings against the entire court. Now, one resigned, one retired. That leaves three others, including the one that's on suspension, who's facing the federal indictment. They're going to have a trial in the West Virginia Senate for their impeachment. Articles of impeachment were passed by the House of Delegates yesterday. It's just uh, all five. There could be a complete and total turnover. All five members of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. Anything that that's the big news in West Virginia right now. And all the more reason why I'm glad I don't practice law anymore. On tour forever with all the preseason injuries so far. Our team's just going to stop playing starters. I see a two to three game preseason coming out next year in response. They're not going to shrink the preseason until they can expand the regular season. They are not going to reduce the total inventory of games below 20 per team. They're just not going to do it. And I predict at some point in August, the commissioner will be somewhere and the commissioner will say, we continue to talk to coaches who think that they can get by with a shorter preseason. And they've been mentioning three preseason games. I could see three preseason games and 17 regular season games as some sort of a compromise. But they need the players to be the ones who ask for it. And I think the money will be there. To the extent that legalized gambling causes more money to come in, if you have more real games, that's another week or two of games on which people will be betting. I think that's going to be the impetus to expanding the regular season. On tour forever, do you think Khalil Mack will be traded before the season starts and who could be a likely team to get him? We talked about that earlier. I'll be shocked if he's traded before then, but who knows? Mike likes dirt. What's Macy's weight up to? Any new tricks to report? Let me tell you, I think she's north of 40. I can just tell by the sounds that I make when I pick her up. Used to be she made the sounds when I picked her up. Now I make the sounds. She was 18 when we got her. She's north of 40. She, uh, no new tricks. She's, she's consistent when it comes to shake now. It used to be hit or miss. The sit thing, she's had that for a while. We work on stay from time to time. Yeah, she's just a happy dog. Just a happy, floppy, run around the yard. And it's, it's funny because she'll bark at us when she needs to go outside and use the bathroom. And what she'll do is, as soon as she goes outside, you know, dogs have no attention span. She gets attract, uh, distracted and starts doing other stuff. we got a decent-sized area out there, patio and bushes and stuff, and she's all over the place. And then she will just barrel to the spot where she makes number two. Like, like i got to go to the bathroom, let me outside. She goes outside, oh, there's this, oh, there's that, oh, there's this, oh, there's that. And then finally it's like, okay, now's the time. And she sprints to her position. And does her thing. And I'll just say this. I don't want to be overly graphic. But the scooper we have. I got to get a bigger one. Soon. Uh, let's see what else we got here. I've already gone for an, almost an hour. Let me answer a few more. I said I was going to do all today. But uh, I may not get to all of them. Because there's more than I thought there would be. Poison Shane. Do you think Americans would be more willing to watch the CFL in the summer. If the league adopted the exact same rules as the NFL. No. No. CFL is still a very niche sport. I don't think people care because they don't care about the players. Look at what Johnny Manziel did. Look at the interest he drove. They just don't care about the players. And they don't care about the teams. They just don't care. Remember the CFL 20-some years ago tried to infiltrate the United States? They had a Baltimore Colts team. They had to eventually give up that name. They had a team. Where are they? They had like five or six teams throughout the U.S., just, uh, they don't care. They don't care. PFTPM Posse, can we get a Harry Potter book report update from Matt Casey 9 soon? PFTPM Posse might like to hear his progress, what he thinks so far, and does what does he expect to happen? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, he, he, we, we told this story. I busted him. Because I think that, what was it? There was a comment about the two quarterbacks being on the same field for the Ravens, and people were acting like this is, some, you know, oh, this is, it's like not some new sport. It's not like Quidditch. And then he said something about me making a Harry Potter reference, and that's what reminded me when he was visiting for the PFT Live Summit. He was on my treadmill in my gym, and I walked in, and he's like, he, 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 he like pulled something off the side. I said, oh, what are you doing? You want the TV? I said, no, I'm reading a book. Oh, what are you reading? Mm, Harry Potter. You could kill somebody with one of those Harry Potter books. I don't know how far he's gotten along. J. Randall, 15, are you or your wife up for one of the West Virginia Supreme Court seats? That gets back to something I was talking about earlier. No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. Uh, never. Even, I mean, first of all, we'd have to move. And second of all, no, absolutely not. 
I should probably wrap it up. What else do we have here? People asking about the puppy. Thank you, Reverend Mark Worth. The puppy is, um, you know, the puppy is work, but boy, there's nothing like in the morning after I finish PFT Live, and then I do anywhere from six to 10 videos for PFT. And I go downstairs, and when she sees me that first time, and she runs over and just barrels, and the tail is, she her tail wags so much, she hits herself in the face with the tail. And it's just, it's just, it's a great way to, you know, it's just great. No matter what's going on, your dog is going to go nuts when your dog sees you for the first time of the day. And it's just great. Fittis and Kane, having done the show in both the morning and the afternoon, which do you prefer? I like the morning because it used to be, you know, there was a, a year or two there where I did a three hour radio show and then had to do a one hour TV show. 12 to three was radio. And then like 5.30 to 6 or 5.30 to 6.30, whatever it was, was TV. And that that wore me out. I like getting it all out of the way early. Wake up at 5.15, show from 6 to 9, and then I got the rest of the day. Unless we're doing an interview, which becomes part of PFTPM. And I guess PFTPM cuts into what otherwise would be the rest of the day. But I, I like this. It's my, it's my little therapy session. All right, let's see what else we have. And I'm sorry if I'm skipping over some of these, but I just, I, I, I do have to wrap this up. Man of Water, 3615, when does the Kaepernick summary judgment happen and what's going on with that? D. Smith had some comments to Jason Reed at the undefeated. I'm actually going to write that up here fairly soon. It's in the hands of the arbitrator. And what the arbitrator is going to rule is either that the case should be dismissed because there's insufficient evidence to even justify a full-blown hearing on whether or not there was collusion, or the arbitrator is going to say, "Eh, no, there's enough evidence, let's have the hearing. And my guess would be the arbitrator is just going to say, let's have the hearing. Let's have the hearing, right? That there's enough there. When you apply the standard, and the standard typically is on summary judgment, that you view all the allegations as true, you consider the facts in the light most favorable to the party that is resisting the motion, and you look for any way that a reasonable trier of fact, a reasonable jury or a reasonable arbitrator who is trying to resolve conflicts in testimony, conflicts in evidence, would a reasonable person look at this and say, there's enough evidence to support the party that wants to keep the case going. If we look at all the evidence of collusion, is there enough there that there's a reasonable person who could find that There's proof of collusion. It's a a tough standard. Very tough. And a lot of times what happens in these cases, and I know this from experience, when you work at a law firm and you got four or five people working on the case, it becomes an echo chamber of all your best arguments. And the other side's arguments are all bullshit and ours are great. And you get yourself all fired up and and it, it just reinforces. You need to have a good, I hate the word devil's advocate because devil's doing fine on his own. But you need a voice that can be objective and step everyone back and say, but you know what? They do, they do make some good points. That, that Just whatever it is, that the culture isn't conducive to the lawyers who get paid by the hour to represent these large companies to consider in a meaningful way the best arguments that are going to be made by the other side and to see how those best arguments could end up resulting in victory. But... It's quite possible that the NFL actually thinks that it's got a slam dunk here, that that's why it's filing this motion, that it's not to smoke out Kaepernick or get them to put their cards on the table. They actually think they're going to win. They actually think they're going to prevent this thing from going to a hearing. Anyway, here's my point. I knew I'd get there eventually. At some point between now and the start of the regular season, there could be a ruling from the arbitrator that there's enough smoke to have a full-blown hearing on whether or not there's fire. And... That may get interpreted a certain way by people in the media. I mean, you know, it could be interpreted by some in the media as proof that, you know, what, maybe there is collusion. And that's really what it is. Maybe there is collusion. There's enough evidence there to justify a full-blown hearing to determine whether or not, based upon all the evidence, there was collusion. So there's at least enough threshold evidence of collusion. I don't know that that's good for the NFL. If that comes out just before the season starts, won't be as bad as the Ray Rice tape that came out the day after the season began four years ago, but it wouldn't be good for the NFL. I can guarantee you that. All right. We'll try this again tomorrow. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your questions. Check us out tomorrow morning, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern PFT live. 
Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. And uh, as always, thanks for your input. Thanks for your support. Subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast. Review the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Tell your enemies about it. Get more people to listen to it. Yada, yada, yada. We'll talk soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.